Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Children who are waiting for psychiatric care in emergency rooms sometimes can wait for days. Every minute you spend in a windowless room not knowing what your future holds when you're already scared or angry or completely out of control is toxic. We'll investigate what care children do and don't get at emergency rooms this week on Next from the New England News Calamity. Plus, we'll visit the abandoned towns at the bottom of Boston's drinking water supply. Nothing angers any of these former residents or descendants is is when people from Boston or other areas that drink the water have no idea what was sacrificed and where it came from. And one year after a school shooting that was threatened but didn't happen, how's the state of Vermont changed the way it approaches school security? So there is a card scanner on the front door, and that is brand new. They put new doors in. We'll look at guns, gun makers, and gun control. Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Guns are back in the global conversation after last week's shootings at two mosques in New Zealand. And they're never far from the minds of lawmakers and advocates who both support and oppose gun control laws. Here in New England, we combine some of the strictest gun laws in the country with a robust gun-making industry that goes back to the early days of the nation. And we've had plenty of news about guns in our region this month. First, let's go to Connecticut, where families of victims sued the company that made the gun used in the killings at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. A lower court judge had blocked the lawsuit against Remington Arms, makers of the Bushmaster rifle. But the Connecticut Supreme Court last week ruled that the families can move forward with the suit, which holds Remington accountable for the way they marketed the weapon. Here's David Wheeler, whose son Ben was killed. There is a reason this particular consumer product is the one that is used by people who want to inflict the most damage. That reason very likely partially resides at the feet of the manufacturers and their advertising and marketing policies. The court wrote that Connecticut law does not permit advertisements that promote or encourage violent criminal behavior. The ruling sends the case back to a lower court. The responsibility of gun makers in mass shootings is just one of the issues the country is grappling with now. Another is how to determine if someone might be a threat to carry out such an attack. In Vermont, one day after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida last year, an 18-year-old named Jack Sawyer was arrested for allegedly planning a similar attack at Fairhaven Union High School. The arrest motivated Vermont's Republican governor to reverse his position on gun control, ushering in the most sweeping gun control legislation in Vermont history, previously one of the most gun-friendly states in the nation. But at the same time, the case against the young man fell apart. So now it's been almost a year since the arrest of Jack Sawyer. What's changed in the state? That's the topic of the latest episode of VPR's podcast, Jolted. They've issued an update on school security and what Jack Sawyer's up to one year on. Nina Keck is with us. She's a reporter for Vermont Public Radio and co-host of Jolted. She started by telling us what's changed in Vermont schools in this past year. 
it's been such a big wake-up call for schools in Vermont. As you can imagine, we've got a lot of old buildings in the state. Our housing stock is really old, and our schools, many of our schools are really old buildings. For instance, the elementary school near me, you walk in and there's a sign saying, please walk up to the second floor office and sign in. And after Jack Sawyer was arrested, schools across the state took a long, hard look at what sort of security they do have in place. And actually, the governor mandated that all schools go through a security audit. And so I think schools realized they needed to take a lot of steps to to kind of play catch up. This was especially true at Fairhaven Union High School, where they spent $500,000 on school security upgrades, everything from new cameras and new door locks to completely redesigning the front entryway. And and I was at Fairhaven Union High School not too long ago talking to a, a junior there by the name of Nathaniel Smith, and he was kind of explaining to me how things have changed at the school. So there is a card scanner on the front door, and that is brand new. They put new doors in, and they put uh, new roofing overhangs in so that it's all open now. There's no, there's no hiding places. And that point about hiding places that Nathaniel Smith is talking about is important because beforehand there were these brick overhangs, almost like mini tunnels that you had to walk through. So... It's a completely different look for the school, much safer. Students that I spoke to said they feel a lot more secure in the school. But I think it's something that schools across the state are are focused on, making themselves safer, and it's it's costing a lot of money. Yeah, it, it cost a lot of money to Connecticut schools after Sandy Hook, and there's been a lot of thought about this across the country. But the question on it is, where's the money coming from? These older school buildings cannot be cheap to retrofit. Who's paying for this? Well, that's been a tough nut for some school districts to crack. The The governor did call for $4 million in state funding to be set aside last year, and lawmakers went ahead and, and did that. In order to get that money, they were called school safety grants. Schools had to pony up 25% of their own money to get matching funds and, and additional funds from the state. And $4 million sounds like a lot of money, but at the end of it all, about 200 plus schools got that money. So it didn't go as far as many school districts had hoped. And I think a lot of school budgets went up this year, including more money for security. Schools are also doing something else to uh, try to secure themselves that really doesn't have anything to do with barriers or, or new types of building at the school. They're, they're surveilling students' social media posts. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things I reported on for this podcast. I had no idea this was going on, but there are a number of companies out there that will monitor, scan public social media sites, a whole broad array of them, I should say. And as you know, I think all Americans use a lot of social media, but teens especially like to communicate using social media. They post a lot. It's a great communication tool for them. And so a lot more companies are trying to say to schools, hey, we'll do that for you at a price. One of those companies that's located in Burlington, Vermont, is called Social Sentinel. And I talked to the the founder of that company, a man named Gary Margolis, about what they do. And when we discover something and can associate it with a client, we deliver an alert. So in many ways, we're where the the you know akin to a, a home fire detection system when when the system smells smoke it sends an alert out 
So that's Gary Margolis. He's the founder of Social Sentinel. And as he explained it to me, they use these algorithms that scan billions of pieces of public, he kept stressing public data points, but to try to find uh, red flag words about self-harm or hate or violence. And school officials that I spoke to that use this device say they like it. It's kind of a, an extra layer of security. So whether it's one of these services, maybe getting information about something a student may have written online, or just as we saw in the Jack Sawyer case, uh, a friend pointing out some some disturbing writings or some plans that somebody is talking about, how are schools responding to the potential for threats now a year on? I, I think schools are responding in a number of ways. We've talked about the way they're trying to beef up their own security I think they're paying more attention to threats, to warning signs with with mental health care. And I think they're also just taking any sorts of alarm bells or warnings more seriously. This is something that Tracy Shriver, who's the Wyndham County State's attorney, told us point blank. Five years ago, I would not have had uh, every school resource officer tell me when he or she investigated some threatening comments by a student. But in the, in the last 12 months, I've made it very clear to my police officers that I do want to know. So now, a year later, after this update, Nina, any, any takeaways from you about this reporting? Well, I think the state really learned a lot following the arrest of Jack Sawyer and seeing what played out at Fairhaven Union High School and, and what that school and that whole community had to go through. So I think it's been... a in a weird way, a healthy wake-up call for a number of communities to take steps to make their schools more secure. But I also think it forces all of us to kind of realize that a lot of this stuff comes down to, to judgment calls for police. You know, are they going to make an arrest when certain behavior comes up that they have to respond to for classmates and teachers? You know, if you see something, should you say something? For parents, for community members, for taxpayers, you know, do we need to spend money on these security upgrades or mental health care personnel? You know, it's all judgment calls. And as my colleague says at the end of this update, you know, this stuff is scary and we don't want to mess it up. So I think it's forced all of us to do a lot more thinking. Mm. What's Jack Sawyer doing now? Well, according to his mother, he is still at the Brattleboro Retreat, which is a psychiatric care facility. He's been there since last April, and his case is still proceeding in family court, and we really don't know more than that because family court cases are confidential. Mm. The the reporting is very thought-provoking. Nina Keck is a reporter for VPR, co-host of the podcast Jolted. Nina, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Jolted is co-hosted and reported by Nina Keck and Liam Elder-Connors. Emily Corwin is the editor and project manager of the podcast, and you can find Jolted at joltedpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Vermont's shift towards stricter gun laws brings the state more in line with its neighbors. But the fact is New England has long been one of the biggest makers of guns sold both inside and outside the U.S., Iconic names like Smith & Wesson, the Colt 45, and Winchester Rifle were all made here, and the region still has several global manufacturers of guns. But still, in late 2018, a big number jumped out at NHPR reporter Todd Bookman. He saw that the government of Saudi Arabia had bought some $61 million worth of firearms from New Hampshire. This number became public just as the world was wrestling with the news that Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi had been murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. 
Over the last several months, Todd's reporting has taken him down a winding road as he's learned even more about a big gunmaker and employer in New Hampshire, Sig Sauer. Todd Bookman, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. What first got you interested in looking at this story? What first caught my attention was actually an article in a local business publication. The article was about exports from New Hampshire, sort of routine data. But it pointed out a really sizable jump in exports to one country in particular that was Saudi Arabia. And what all did it show exactly? Well, it showed a $61 million shipment. And with the export data, it actually gets pretty granular. So you can dig into the specific codes And the codes were for a type of weapon of war. So the category is either rocket launchers, grenade launchers, or flamethrowers. Certainly not something that New Hampshire is known for. But there it was, and we were able to track through the export data that this product had been sold by a New Hampshire company. We don't know which one. And that it had been shipped out of the port in in Baltimore on its way to Saudi Arabia. So what do we know about who is exporting these weapons? Yeah, that, that is a really good question. The export numbers, they they don't provide the who, they only provide the, the where. New Hampshire is home to a couple of major arms and defense contractors. So we do have a few possibilities. Uh, you mentioned Sig Sauer. This is a German-owned conglomerate. They've got their U.S. headquarters here in New Hampshire. The company has grown rapidly in the past decade or so. And we know that a lot of that growth is from these large arms contracts with foreign governments. Another big company is BAE Systems. This is actually the world's second largest defense contractor. They've got a sizable footprint here in New Hampshire. We know that they produce something called a a laser-guided rocket that would likely fall into this category of export. Also, a a company called Caracal. It's it's not as well-known, but they're owned by a conglomerate based in the United Arab Emirates, and their manufacturing base is also here in New Hampshire. So those are a couple of options. But again, we do not know which company or companies may be behind this single shipment to Saudi Arabia. New Hampshire is pretty big in the defense industry, specifically in firearm manufacturing. What all did you learn about it as you as you dug into these various companies and, and what they really mean for the state in terms of economic development and employment? Yeah, you just don't hear much about the firearms sector. Obviously, uh, local politicians love to talk up manufacturing and the importance of the manufacturing sector in in New Hampshire and across New England. It's always played an important role for providing middle class jobs. But, you know, gunmakers don't don't typically uh, get too much attention or they don't seek it at least. You know, they're not likely to sponsor, um, you know, the local 5K or, or a new wing of, of the museum. They, mm-hmm. they move in a slightly different corporate circle. But but here in New Hampshire, uh, a, a 2017 study actually found that the state has one of the highest rates of firearms manufacturing jobs per capita in the country. So it is clearly an important employer here in New Hampshire. So it's big business. And, and if we hone in on one of these companies you've been following that you mentioned, Sig Sauer, the, the U.S. Army selected Sig to provide its firearm for all soldiers. This is a pretty big contract, Todd, worth about $580 million. What more can you tell us about this deal? Yeah, this was a really big deal. It was announced in January of 2017 uh, after a, a years-long competition with essentially most of the uh, small arms makers in the U.S. The Army had used Beretta since 1985. That just shows you you know, how rarely these contracts change hands. But the Army went with a Sig Sauer pistol called the P320. And now a couple hundred thousand of these guns will be manufactured here in New Hampshire. We've actually got some some tape of Six Hours CEO, a guy named Ron Cohen, talking about sort of what this meant for the company. There is nothing that we have done as a company that's greater 
than winning the U.S. Army uh, pistol. I think it's the most uh, gratifying part of everything we collectively have done. There is, however, a legal issue that the company faces. You reported just this month that Sig Sauer is facing a potential class action lawsuit over an issue with a pistol they sell. Tell us exactly what, what the issue is. What's the suit about? Yeah, this actually comes back to the same gun that the Army selected as its new sidearm, the the P320. This is a very popular pistol. And in 2016, while the Army was testing this gun, the Army came to SIG and they said, listen, the weapon is failing what's known as the drop test. The gun gets dropped from, from different angles and at different heights to see if it will fire even with its safety on. SIG modified the weapon, apparently to the Army's satisfaction, but this new lawsuit It claims that SIG continued to sell a potentially unsafe version of the P320 to the public for another 16 months. SIG denies this. They say the original P320 is safe, but it's offering consumers uh, what it's labeling a voluntary upgrade. But the potential class action lawsuit says the company didn't act quick enough to notify potential customers of this potential drop fire issue. So this is a consumer protection issue, but... The government can't step in and protect consumers in the same way here they might with some other product defect? Exactly. Another gun maker, Remington, actually dealt with a similar issue. Recently, this involved one of its triggers that led to a class action lawsuit. And I spoke with Eric Holland. He's the lawyer who led that suit. He's based in St. Louis. So when you have a defect in a vehicle, you have a federal agency that can step in and uh, mandate recalls. There is no such agency with regard to guns in the United States. Because of this prohibition on regulation, these class action lawsuits have actually become the primary way to, to, to remedy what these consumers say is wrongdoing by the company. Todd Bookman's a reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio, and you can find links to all of his reporting on this issue at nexttonewengland.org. Todd, thanks once again for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, we'll travel to abandoned towns that now sit at the bottom of a reservoir. But first, the hurdles to accessing psychiatric care for Vermont's children. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. At the University of Vermont's Medical Center emergency room, most kids spend an average of less than four hours before being sent home or admitted. But that's not the case for children in need of mental health care. VPR's Emily Corwin recently reported that in 2018, 73 children in psychiatric distress spent on average three and a half days and sometimes longer waiting for mental health care in the ER at the UVM facility. Emily Corwin's here with us to discuss her recent investigation, which looks at the care the kids get and don't get at the hospital while they wait, and why one solution to these long wait times just doesn't seem to be working out. Emily started by telling us about a 13-year-old girl, also named Emily, who was adopted out of the foster care system by her mom, Jennifer and why her mother has sought psychiatric care for her at UVM's emergency room. Emily had experienced severe trauma as a little kid, and 
as she hit puberty, as she turned about 13, you know, with the hormones that that brings on, it was it was making her trauma resurface in new ways. And she would go through these cycles. Her mom described them as dissociative episodes where she would be harming herself, scratching and kicking and even like seeking out knives in the kitchen. So that's sort of like the degree of crisis that would warrant, you know, a parent not just to call the pediatrician, but actually try to get their kid into the hospital. Yeah, so this sounds like a, a very scary problem, something that's terrifying for parents. So they, they take their kid to the University of Vermont Medical Center emergency room. They get to the ER. What happens next? In this case of Emily, the 13-year-old, for example, you know, her mom would call EMS and actually like have an ambulance take her, you know, strapped down to a stretcher to the ER. Sometimes they would have to have multiple people help transfer her to a bed there. Um, and these are, you know, this is an ER that does not have inpatient beds for children for psychiatric problems. So these are beds that, you know, someone with a broken leg might be waiting for, right? And then a nonprofit community organization would actually bring a, a crisis worker would come in, sometimes in conjunction with a doctor at the ER, sometimes a psychiatrist, sometimes just a, a general emergency doctor. They do an evaluation. If the kid, like Emily did, needed acute inpatient care, they would, you know, look to see where she might go. And in Vermont, there's just one place to go. It's two hours away in Brattleboro. And, you know, most of the time or often there's a wait. And so she would get on that wait list. Crisis worker would go. And she would then spend days having the briefest of evaluations with the doctor But it was really just uh, about waiting for days until she could get into one of these beds. And over six months, between 2017 and 2018, this young girl, Emily, made six visits to the ER like this. This is how her mom, Jennifer, describes the experience. It's being placed in a holding tank where it's for my daughter. She's hurting. And yet you can't escape that. There's nobody to help create that pathway to that higher level of care. And there's something to to think about or to know about UVM Medical Center, which is that it's a premier teaching and research hospital in the region. And unlike a lot of the sort of rural community hospitals where kids are also waiting for care like this, UVM Medical Center is, you know, state of the art. It has resources. And there are 11 full-time and two part-time child psychiatrists doing outpatient care, research, and teaching at the medical school within steps of the emergency room. Yet the the parents and the pediatricians that I talk to whose patients and children are in the ER at UVM Medical Center in Burlington, they say those those kids never saw a child psychiatrist or a child specialist while they were there. That includes Emily, who spent a total of 17 days at the ER over those six visits. And, you know, when I talked to some pediatricians, like, for example, a a pediatrician named Elizabeth Hunt from South Burlington, she mentioned that she thinks having kids just waiting in the ER actually exacerbates the very crisis that brought them there in the first place. Because every minute you spend in a windowless room not knowing what you're future holds when you're already scared or angry or completely out of control is toxic. What has the hospital had to say about this problem? 
I think in some ways they're stuck, and and maybe they didn't say this in so many words, but it's not as though the hospital sought out this population to provide care to them. I mean, they don't have an inpatient psychiatric facility for children, and yet these kids are showing up because there aren't enough beds anywhere else. So that's one thing to think about. And then given that, the hospital does acknowledge that the care that these kids are receiving, it's not what parents expect from a place like UVM Medical Center. But they also, you know, what they said was happening for kids did not really align neatly with what parents and outside community doctors were telling me happened. So the hospital's chief medical officer, Isabel Desjardins, sort of described one thing to me, and and I have a bite here for you. Psychiatrists do provide um, evaluations twice a day where um, they engage in, with, with the patients and the families in the emergency department, and so do the first call clinician. You're telling me that a psychiatrist interacts with the family and the patient twice a day every day? There is an expectation for a psychiatrist who works in the emergency department to evaluate the patient on a daily basis. So, you know, you can hear here Isabel Desjardins is saying that, you know, she acknowledges that child psychiatrists aren't in the ER every day. But she seems to think that children in psychiatric crisis are seeing a psychiatrist of some kind every day. And that's just not what, you know, parents and pediatricians said was happening. And I reviewed some documents with the family doctor of Emily and You know, in the 17 days that Emily was in the ER, she only saw a psychiatrist of any kind five of those days. So there really isn't sort of a consistency lining up with what the chief medical officer's expectations are and what's actually happening on the ground. So, Emily, then what are the solutions to this problem? How do we solve this issue of the hospitals having the personnel necessary to take care of these kids in crisis and and really be able to do something in a way that's available to people in areas near them so they don't just have one or two places to go? So as far as the scope of, you know, of what I've looked at, you know, I think one thing I need to say is that UVM Medical Center, when I went to them and asked these questions, they actually revealed to me that they had just like that day gotten a green light to hire a new child psychiatrist to work in the ER. You know, there's yet another solution that that this story led me to, and which I did another story about, um, which is another hospital in Plattsburgh, New York, which is actually just 45 minutes from the population center um, of Vermont in Burlington. Not only does it have a child uh, psychiatric unit, but it was actually, it's a unit that's been sort of brought back to life by the UVM Medical Center. So I was looking at it. I was really surprised to find that over the last year, you know, while it's getting a lot of good use, 151 kids used that unit. Only seven of them were from Vermont. And so even though it's so close to Vermont, it seems like, you know, for a lot of different reasons, many of them sort of still unclear to me. It's just not being utilized by UVM Medical Center and uh, the kids in the ER. What do you take away from all this reporting, Emily? What What do you uh, hope to learn in the future, too? I think that that the bottom line is, you know, when you're when you're dealing with big systemic problems. I mean, mental health care is like this is not just UVM Medical Center that's struggling with this. This is sort of an intractable healthcare problem in our country. You know, I think it's a, it's really important to break it down and choose choose something to focus on and say, what does the community really need? And then what can we do to solve that problem? And I think in this situation, if people really pay attention to the incredible need that these families are in who show up at the emergency room and then look around and say, OK, 45 minutes across the lake, 
there may be a solution. How do we harness that? You have to chip away at this problem. And, and I think that's one way to do it. Emily Corwin's an investigative reporter and editor for VPR. Emily, thanks as always for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Half a year since the opening of the MGM Casino in Springfield, some mental health counselors are seeing an uptick in gambling among clients, though not necessarily an increase in people seeking addiction treatment. Meanwhile, services to help problem gamblers seem to be ramping up, but slowly. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown has our story. The Gundera Center is a mental health clinic in the north end of Springfield, where daytime TV plays continuously in the waiting room. Therapists like Crystal Aviles del Valle mostly serve clients on public assistance. Before MGM opened, del Valle says only a few of her patients gambled regularly. Now, she estimates 85% do. She thinks they use gambling as a coping mechanism for stress or depression. So instead of maybe going out shopping, now I go to the casino. And in some cases, they may have replaced substance abuse with gambling. That's not to say her clients have a gambling addiction at this point. The official diagnosis requires a full year of problematic behavior. Nevertheless, Del Valle says her patients may not recognize an encroaching problem. Obviously, if it's not impairing their functioning, it's fine. But once they start telling me, you know, like um, they lost a lot of money and, and words like I need to get back to kind of make the amount of money that I lost. I had a client that told me I went to the casino and I went at night and it was the other day in the morning and I had no idea how many hours had passed and I was still at the casino. Other counselors at the Gondora Center say gambling is up among their patients, too. But the state does not yet have official data on gambling trends. It's really difficult to judge whether or not we're seeing like an increase in the prevalence of problem gambling in, in and around Springfield. Mark Vanderlinden runs the Office of Responsible Gambling for the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. It's not surprising that with any new type of gambling, you get people that are interested in, in trying it out and seeing how it goes. And then what's also very typical is that once the casino is there for a while, the novelty of it um, is gone. However many people are gambling, Gondra Administrator Lara Quiles says almost no patients are asking to be treated for it. And she says, unlike with substance abuse, it's hard for counselors to know exactly when gambling becomes problematic. Because typically when a person is struggling with substance, we can see other signs, perhaps physical signs, deterioration in mental health. But um, with gambling, it takes more time. Another effort to prevent problem gambling is the GameSense program, which operates on the MGM floor. Staff members are supposed to teach customers how to play the games, how the odds favor the house, and also how to get help if they're developing problems. On a few recent visits, the GameSense office was empty of customers, while the nearby rewards center was full. Since the casino opened, GameSense staff have recorded more than 65,000 interactions with MGM customers, but fewer than one-sixth were related to problem gambling. The majority were brief and casual, like a simple hello. Mark Vanderlinden of the Gaming Commission. And by the way, I think a, a lot of those simple interactions can and do um, build into kind of a more trusted relationship which could encourage some customers to sign up for self-exclusion. That's a voluntary agreement that says the person is not allowed to gamble at Massachusetts casinos. The Gaming Commission says about 400 people are on the state's self-exclusion list. 125 signed up at the MGM casino, 
and 10 more arranged to sign up off-site but nearby. Marlene Warner is executive director of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. She says they're trying to make it easier for people to sign up for self-exclusion away from the casino. And she'd really like to designate therapists to do that in their offices. But the Gaming Commission has yet to set up that system. It seems pretty ideal and, you know, a no-brainer that that individual would then be trained to put that person on a self-exclusion list instead of them having to make a separate phone call and separate effort. State law requires the Department of Public Health to address gambling issues, too. The casino legislation even created a revenue stream, eventually an estimated 15 to $20 million a year taken from casino revenue is meant to go into a public health trust fund. But Victor Ortiz, who runs the department's Problem Gambling Services Division, says he doesn't know how much money is in that fund now, and he hasn't tried to access it. Ortiz says his team has launched 12 initiatives to help prevent gambling problems, but only two of those are in western Massachusetts, and it's not clear how visible they've been. We just uh, completed a public awareness campaign um, that's targeting men of color with a history of substance misuse. He says that included posters on Springfield area buses and pamphlets delivered to Springfield clinics, including the Gondora Center. But Gondora's clinical director says she hasn't seen any pamphlets, and neither has the head of the Public Health Institute of Western Mass. Ortiz said the state is also launching in Springfield what's called the Ambassador Program, a peer support model for problem gambling that he says will be based at the Gondora Center. They're just now beginning to launch it off, and it should be launched off in the next couple of weeks or so. But that's news to Gondora's clinical director, who said the Springfield Clinic has no plans to host an ambassador program. As for the city's role in all this, Springfield Health Commissioner Helen Calton Harris says she's been talking to community members and hasn't heard of an increase in gambling problems. There has not been any public health uh, challenges that have come to the forefront. However, that does not mean they do not exist. We also don't have the individual in place who we would want to gather that information for us at this time. Colton Harris says her department plans to hire someone to oversee gambling issues. Last August, before the casino opened, she said that hire was imminent. But six months later, the position remains unfilled. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Massachusetts is facing a lawsuit over the way it commits men to addiction treatment. The suit alleges gender discrimination, arguing that because the state doesn't send civilly committed women to prison for treatment, then it shouldn't send men there either. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The suit alleges that most men committed to addiction treatment in Massachusetts are placed in prisons or jails, even though they haven't committed any crimes. The suit's being filed by 10 men who are at the Massachusetts Alcohol and Substance Abuse Center, or MASAC, which is in Plymouth. They move them like cattle kind of through there. This woman, Brittany, doesn't want to give her last name so as not to identify her 25-year-old fiancé, who's one of the plaintiffs. He tells her the prison is dirty and it's punitive, with men often placed in segregation or the hole. When he was first there, he was put into the hole for 60 hours, uh, where he was put in with just his boxers and a blanket that didn't even cover his entire body. The men say they're forced to wear prison garb. They're strip-searched and often denied addiction and psychiatric medications. Attorney Bonnie Teneriello is with Prisoners Legal Services, the group that filed the suit. Each of these men uh, would expect in any kind of treatment situation to, have to be staffed by professionals who understand addiction 
uh, and mental health issues. Instead, their lives are supervised by corrections officers. Under the Massachusetts law known as Section 35, a judge can involuntarily commit a person to addiction treatment if it's determined that the person's substance use poses a danger. More than 6,000 people were civilly committed in Massachusetts in the last fiscal year. MASAC opened in 2017 and is the largest of the three state facilities for men. Last year, the state established a committee to review the Section 35 process. 36-year-old Joel Kargaravat from Lowell told the group that MASAC is a dangerous place. There were brutal fistfights that went on for five minutes before guards would come and break it up. You know, you'd see blood, you'd hear screaming, um, people would be hurt. And then I hadn't talked to my family in two weeks because my phone list hadn't been approved. The lawsuit also questions the treatment provided there. Rebecca Carr, an addiction counselor who once worked at Plymouth, says the staff there work hard, but they're often stymied by correctional rules. She says the counselors essentially are case managers. Your job is to get people out of there, basically. Use 30 days to get them aftercare treatment, find the way to get there. Treatment, housing, transportation. That was That's what you're supposed to do. Section 35 allows someone to be committed for up to 90 days, although the average stay is much shorter. Supporters say a lockdown facility is often needed for people in the throes of addiction. And many of those who involuntarily commit their loved ones to treatment say it was a step they had to take to keep that person alive. I put my son in there and my son is dead. Michelle Wiley's 29-year-old son, David McKinley, killed himself while committed at MASAC in 2017. Although Wiley says she still supports involuntary commitments, she thinks treatment should not be in prison. How do they expect people to get help and, and be positive and, and get a better life on them for themselves if they're treated like they're criminals and when all they're doing is asking for help? This is not the first time the state has faced litigation over Section 35. In 2016, Massachusetts stopped sending civilly committed women to correctional facilities in response to a lawsuit. But the state has added prison beds for civilly committed men, so that now, Teneriello says, three-quarters of the men's Section 35 beds are in correctional facilities. Why are men being sent to prison? Men are no less human than women, and and the prison environment is no more appropriate for men. The lawsuit, which names state health and public safety officials, alleges gender discrimination, disability discrimination because those addicted are considered disabled, and violations of due process rights. State health and public safety officials and the Department of Correction all say they will not comment on pending litigation. The state has 20 days to respond. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, remembering a town before the flood. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. In most communities, whatever you flush down the toilet goes to a treatment plant. But in some Massachusetts cities and towns, it could end up in a local river during a rainstorm. Miriam Wasser reports on a new statewide effort to let you know when that happens. It's one of those New England mornings. The thermometer says it's 18 degrees, but your fingertips say it's colder. Five men gather at a busy intersection near the Arlington-Cambridge border. To their back, 
rush hour traffic. To their front, a bridge overlooking Alewife Brook, which leads to the Mystic River. Every month they come out here to test the water, weather be damned. Generally the water here is okay, but sometimes it's pretty bad. This is Bill Eikamp. He got interested in river contamination decades ago when his kids were young and learning to swim. Now he volunteers to test the water. So put the bottle in the device. He drops a Nalgene bottle over the bridge to collect a sample. Standing nearby is Patrick Heron, executive director of the Mystic River Watershed Association. He says they're testing for all sorts of things. Salinity, oxygen levels, industrial pollutants, as well as... Bacteria indicators like E. coli and Enterococcus. This is a brook that's had a history of too much sanitary sewage in it? Yes, sewage. If you're wondering how this could happen in 2019, the answer goes by an acronym, CSO. It stands for Combined Sewer Overflow. Wastewater and stormwater travel through separate pipes in most towns. But in a combined system, they travel, as you may have guessed, in the same pipe. Most days, this works just fine. All the water in the pipe goes to a treatment plant like Deer Island, and you never have to think about it. But big rainstorms overwhelm the system. And rather than let sewage back up into your house or the street, a CSO dumps it into nearby rivers and streams. Alewife Brook has six active CSOs right now. In 2018, they discharged on about 18 separate dates and probably discharged somewhere between uh, 2 and 5 million gallons of sewage into this brook. And that's just Alewife Brook. There are about 200 active CSOs in 18 Massachusetts cities, and many more throughout New England. Collectively, they release billions of gallons of sewage every year. There are CSOs in the Merrimack River, the Connecticut and Nashua Rivers, Chelsea Harbor, Boston Harbor, and even the Charles River. No one builds CSOs anymore. No one wants the ones we have. But getting rid of them is going to take years and cost billions. So for now, water advocates just want to reduce the public health risk, a risk that will likely worsen as climate change brings more of the sudden heavy storms that trigger CSO discharges, a risk Heron says many people don't even know about. It's something that's happening here uh, right at the edge of where a lot of people are driving by, but they probably don't realize that this infrastructure is here and discharges sewage. In Massachusetts, sewer operators must report CSO events to state and federal regulators within a few days. What's not required? Informing the public when it happens. The Massachusetts Rivers Alliance, an environmental group, wants to change this with legislation. Gabby Queenan is the group's policy director. The bill is very simple. It would require that within two hours, um, local municipal officials are notified of a spill. And then also within those two hours that there's a notice put out via a a text or email listserv. You know how you get texts about flash flood warnings or amber alerts? It'd be like that, she says. And it would include health safety tips, like whether it's safe to boat or fish. Fourteen other states, including Vermont and New York, have laws like this. Honestly, we're looking forward to people getting pretty mad, pretty upset that this is still happening in our state and that we haven't prioritized infrastructure funding Public notification may feel like a no-brainer, but not everyone is on board. The actual notification part, sending an email or making a phone call, is not the problem. This is Phil Guerin. He runs Worcester's sewer system and says the challenge for many cities is knowing in real time if they have a CSO discharge. 
Installing the necessary meters is a lot harder than it sounds and more expensive, he says. Keisha, we just want to have a process that is doable for, for all the communities that it would, would impact. Similar bills haven't made it very far in the past, though advocates say recent headline-grabbing sewage discharges in the Merrimack River make this year different. Whether public awareness translates into a new law remains to be seen. But Queenan of Mass Rivers Alliance thinks with the spotlight on this issue, this is their best chance yet. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. So it seems there might be something ghastly in the water around Boston, but there's also something ghostly at the bottom of Boston's drinking supply. The remains of four towns. The townsfolk were forced to leave in the 1930s when the state of Massachusetts flooded the area to create a reservoir. WSHU's Davis Donovan met the people who keep the memory of the Swift River Valley alive as part of his podcast, Off the Path from New York to Boston. A Tuesday tea is held once a month in a cozy state park building in central Massachusetts. Good afternoon. Really good to see a lot of uh, former residents of the valley here, as well as direct descendants. Gene Thoreau runs the group called Friends of the Quabbin. That's another name for the Swift River Valley. He wasn't around when the towns existed, but his family farmed the valley for centuries. I had relatives, ancestors that lived in all four towns. And and, uh, when they did the reservoir project, my family, the different uh, sides of it, we lost eight properties. There were about half a dozen people at this tea party who lived in the valley before it was flooded. Most were too young to remember it, but Stanley Boyko does. He's 98 years old. He was 18 when his town of Enfield, the largest of the four, went to a watery grave. I could tell you, everybody from the Enfield line, what they did, where they went, believe me. Stanley has an album full of hazy, black-and-white photos of life in Enfield. So you say the pictures came out good, huh? This is where I grew up. Ten big rooms. There's pictures of his school, the Congregational Church, and the local watering hole. Galvin's Hotel. You're the place in town you could get a shot in the beer. Did you ever get a shot in the beer there? No. <laughs> Stanley says there were two main occupations in Enfield. You either worked in one of the local mills or you were a dairy farmer. Stanley learned to milk the family's cows when he was just 10 years old. And he can tell you everything his family had on the farm. Almost two acres of land. Corn, beans, pumpkins, squash, radishes, cucumbers. We had one horse, one wagon, one pig, 75 turkeys, and the old man had a still. The four towns of Enfield, Dana, Greenwich, and Prescott were sacrificial lambs, along with parts of neighboring towns. The city of Boston needed fresh drinking water for its growing metropolis. The state legislature voted to take the towns by eminent domain. The residents gathered together one final time on April 27, 1938, for a community ball. The last song played was Old Lang Syne, and at the stroke of midnight, the four towns were officially dissolved. When we left, everything was still standing. All, all the buildings, all the homes, the barns, the meat market, Joe Zelsky's barbershop, 50 cents for a haircut. The water rushed in a few months later. The homes and barns gradually dissolved under the water. Only their stone foundations are left. A scuba diver filmed the remains for a 2001 local PBS documentary. You see fish swimming, seaweed grown into the crumbled stone walls, and roads covered in lichens. 
the cracked and potholed roads descend deep into the reservoir. Smallmouth bass have discovered that potholes can easily be turned into nests. The state relocated the valley's cemeteries. Headstones and bodies were loaded into hearses and brought a few miles down the road. Thirty-four cemeteries scattered across the valley were condensed into one plot of land called Quabbin Park Cemetery. We're going to, uh, I'm going to take a walk over there. Jean Thoreau shows me the cracked and faded headstones covered in moss. Some are toppled over. The dates go back to the 1700s, maybe 10 generations of residents of the Quabbin Valley. There's a lot of uh, Revolutionary War veterans in here. There's a lot of Civil War veterans. Gene leads me to a monument that shows a soldier hunched over with a musket. Long rows of names are inscribed underneath. Over here, that's the uh, Enfield Civil War uh, soldier. That used to be on the Enfield Town Green. Six of my ancestors and relatives whose names are on that monument who uh, were from the valley and participated in the Civil War. The state of Massachusetts is in charge of the cemetery's upkeep. Gene says he wished it did a better job. See this beautiful uh, monument right here? He died in 1786. Look at this beautiful stonework carving. And you see all this in here? What do you think all that stuff is? Gypsy moth um, shells. Gene says he'd like more Bostonians to know the water they drink every day was made possible by the sacrifice of hundreds of families. Nothing angers any of these former residents or descendants is, is when people from Boston or other areas that drink the water have no idea what was sacrificed and where it came from. There are fewer people every year who remember life in the valley. Gene collects their stories through photographs and oral histories. He says he wants to preserve those memories for the day in the not-too-distant future when no one alive remembers the towns at all. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Davis Donovan. That story's part of Davis's podcast, Off the Path, from New York to Boston. You can also find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Andrew Perella. Our music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio.